Alors bonjour tout le monde et bienvenue à Montréal, dans la belle province de Québec, pour l'édition spéciale de Museo Punks, ici au Museum Computer Network 2013. Mon nom est Pierre Bois et euh, je suis gestionnaire de projet avec l'Association des musées de l'Ontario, Ontario Museum Association, et ça me fait le plaisir, un grand, grand, grand plaisir ici à Museum Computer Network de vous présenter le Museo Punks. Alors, euh, bon podcast et euh, je vais vous voir dans l'autre salle. Bonjour, and welcome <laughs> to Museo Punks, uh, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name's Jeff, uh, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Suze. How's it going? Uh, things are pretty good, although, you know, day three of the conference now. Yesterday I was feeling a little bit tired when we started this, yeah. and today it's that much worse. Conferences like this I find super amazing, but you just want to be part of everything. Yeah, I must say I'm a little, I'm a little bit sad. This is the, this is the final uh, episode we're doing together here at MCN <laughs> yeah. in Montreal, but um, you know, I think we, uh, we had some really great guests, and we have some awesome guests today on covering some really great topics. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about today's discussion. This is something I've been thinking about for a while. We're going to be talking about how technologies actually sort of change our way of being in the world, perceiving the world, and what that might mean for us as museum professionals. But before we do that, um, we had some great sessions yesterday, right? I mean, like, what, what did you see that you really reacted to? Well, actually, in some ways, <laughs> I think one of the things that I get a lot of benefit from out of this conference is that not only are there sessions running, but there's also things like makerspaces running. Yep. So yesterday there's been a thing here called the Layer of Chaos, Uh, which is allowing people to make and create um, with their hands. But, and what I love is this capacity to come and do something physical as well as having these sort of sessions that you're really using your mind for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I thought the, the morning session of, of uh, Media Labs uh, oh, with Don, yes. Don Undine and uh, the group of graduate students, um, I thought that was really great to kind of show how, how spaces like that can exist in the museum context as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so uh, before we get into the topic today, let's thank some people. I think that's good. Do you uh, want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks again to Parska Films, uh, these guys behind the camera doing awesome work. Not only our sessions, but all of the sessions here. Um, and if, uh, if you're watching at home or if you're listening to this, um, go check out MCN's website where all the films from all the sessions are going to be. And these guys are great. Also yeah. MCN. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we wouldn't be here at all if it wasn't for MCN, and it has been an amazing thing to be able to get to come and both attend the conference, but also talk to people that we find really interesting about topics we find interesting. Yeah, um, and, and so what is the topic today? Well, as I say, so we're talking about sense perception. It, for me, this, this started, I remember reading some Marshall McLuhan um, a few years ago, and he has this lovely quote about how... Um, As you actually, as new technologies come in, your way of perceiving the world starts to change and then that starts to shift across a whole society. Um, and that's a really radical transformation and we're not always cognizant of it, we're not always aware of it. And so we sort of wanted to unpack some of the ways in which um, technologies are changing the way we are in the world. Yeah, and we have three wonderful people to kind of roll around that with, with us with that. So um, starting at the end, uh, we have uh, Matthew Israel. Um, and Matt, is he's an art historian and director of the Art Genome Project at Artsy. 
his book, uh, Kill for Peace, American Artists Against the Vietnam War, was published in August of 2013 by the University of Texas Press. Uh, Matt has taught uh, modern and contemporary art history at New York University, among other institutions, and his writing has been published in Art in America, Art Form, and Freeze. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. All right, next down the line we have Beck Tench. And Beck is the Director for Innovation and Digital Engagement at the Museum of Life and Science in Durham, North Carolina. She's the creator of Experiment, a platform that engages the public in daily challenges that foster science as a way of knowing, while at the same time collecting data for researchers to play with outside the rigour of their labs. Her other work spans understanding how to facilitate and find evidence of informal science learning in online spaces, how to translate born digital experiences into museum exhibits, and how to use the internet to get people off the internet. (laughs) She's also a trustee on her local library board. Beck, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and finally, uh, to, to my left here uh, is Nancy Proctor. Uh, Nancy heads up mobile strategy and initiatives for the Smithsonian Institution and is also co-chair of Museums in the Web Annual Conference uh, with a PhD in American Art History and a background in filmmaking, curation, and art criticism. Uh, Nancy published her first online exhibition in 1995 and co-founded the, the galleychannel.com in 1998 with uh, Titus Bicknell. Uh, to to present virtual tours of innovative exhibitions alongside comprehensive global museum and gallery listings. Um, So thanks, Nancy, for joining us. Thank you. I have a question that I'd like to ask all of you in the room. Um, How long in the morning does it take once you've woken up before you check in online or check your first, have your first piece of, interaction with the internet? Five seconds. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> I have a different answer. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, so I, I think that that first check is, is sort of, um, it starts the dopamine reward of knowing. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I try to wait as long as possible. Huh. Um, so sometimes that first check isn't for an hour and a half. Um, but, uh, you know, at least 30 minutes I try to give before I get that first kick and then I'm addicted all day long. <laughs> how, did you, what, how did you start that approach? Or why did you start that approach, more I, importantly? I think it's going to be interesting to have this conversation because I'm, I'm a total digital person and yet so much of my life, my work is very digital, my life is very analog. Um, so I started, uh, I went to Canada, well, I'm in Canada now, I went to this place called Lake Podash, it was a, a cabin in an island, and had no internet at all for about eight days, no uh, electricity or anything, and came back wanting to kind of replicate some of the peace that that brought in my life. So I, uh, I, I have, a, I have my, my router on a, on a light timer, and it turns off every night at six, and then turns back on at nine. So that's cool. So that's wow. one of the ways that I, that I get it done. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so kind of along that same thread, um, uh, Nancy, how long can you go without checking your mobile device for things? It's like once you. <laughs> <laughs> it's really tough. In fact, um, for a couple of weeks now, um, I've had my worst bout ever of repetitive strain injury from typing on small screen based devices wow. so all of my fingers and the tips um, are constantly tingling and I get shooting pains up this arm if I lift things in certain ways and I know what this cure is which is stop typing on small <laughs> screen based devices for a couple of weeks but I don't quite know how I can do that um, hmm. So, yeah, it's a bit of a dilemma, a dilemma that I had kind of postponed till after MCN to deal with. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. 
Wow. Well, this is, I mean, I'm sort of really interested by that, the fact that you're actually getting these physical responses to the technology. Because one of the things I'm quite interested in is if we all walk around with a phone in our hand or on us almost constantly, whether we're becoming cyborgs in maybe slightly different ways to the way we once conceived it, but whether actually it is it's part of our body now. Matt, do you, is your phone on you constantly? Yeah, yeah, and I was actually joking with, uh, so I'm staying with one of my best friends here in Montreal, and I was joking to him last night as I was taking pictures of all the great public art here in Montreal that how much of a pain it is to take your phone out of your pocket. Just because you, you, you get to this point where you're, you know, you think about, oh, well, you know, was, cameras were so bulky, and now it's like, phones are so bulky, it would just be so much easier if you had it on your face. <laughs> and we obviously have that technology now, but, um, but I think it's, it's just funny to think about how quickly you get used to things and, yeah. and, and take things for granted. It's certainly affecting our behavior, like you just said, you know, with the, the act of taking things out of our pockets and, and even, even on a photographic level, you know, um, uh, this this idea that photography um, is tradition uh, functioned as a memory device, but now I think it's kind of evolved into a, a broadcasting device or collecting device as well. Yeah, there was a study done by um, a memory scientist who's found that teenagers are using it as as a communication and broadcasting device yeah. almost more than as a memory device. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to go to go to Nancy with this, and how do you think that's affecting? Our, our institutions. I mean, like, um, is that shift in behavior um, affecting institutions? And are institutions um, reacting to that behavior? Well, I think it's huge, and it's something that um, we're taking very seriously at the Smithsonian in terms of our mobile strategy and our approach to working with mobile experiences and offerings for, for visitors and people who don't physically come to our museums but are engaging with our content off-site. Mm-hmm. Um, we recently did a study at the museum, the Air and Space Museum mm-hmm. um, and discovered that about 50% of what people are doing with their own devices when they bring them to the museum is taking pictures. Mm-hmm. So we're really interested in... Um, finding ways to take that natural gesture. I'm interested in something. I pull out my phone. I aim my camera at it and turn that gesture, as it were, into a vote to learn, a vote to engage in a conversation as a trigger for something else that might happen. Um, And we've found that um, about 70% or more of our visitors are coming with Internet-enabled devices to the museum. And I understand that that number was... uh, very similar at the VNA in a recent study. So, you know, it's a, it's a really important trend, and interestingly enough, far outweighs the traditional um, percentages of visitors using, uh, for example, audio tours and those kinds of mobile technologies in museums. Now, there are some important exceptions that I look forward to studying. For example, MoMA, where the audio tour device is free and they get about a 40% take-up rate. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, even so, picture-taking is exceeding that. And um, I believe that was one of the most successful um, parts of the, the of the MoMA app. So I think mm-hmm. these are things we need to take very seriously and learn how to work with them. And have you seen it changing? I mean, I, I it seems to me that I'm really very frequently seeing articles and pieces really arguing for allowing people to take photos in gallery. But that's not to say that all institutions have embraced mm-hmm. that. But do you think there is a trend of people being much, or institutions being much more open to people photographing in gallery now? 
I think it's starting. I mean, at MoMA, you can photograph in the permanent collection galleries. Yeah. I think it just got to the point where they weren't going to be able to put enough guards in the it, yeah. galleries mm-hmm. to stop it. I mean, in fact, if you go to Flickr, you'll find any museum in the world is on there, regardless mm-hmm. of their photography policy. Tate opened up photography in their galleries a long time ago, and those are both, you know, modern and contemporary art collections. So um, I think we're trending that way. As always, these things take time because we're yeah. museums. We don't move very fast. <laughs> how, about, how about with your museum, Beck? I mean, it's a little bit different than an art museum. Are you seeing the same kind of things? Uh, absolutely. I think that you know, when we think about um, cameras uh, as memory devices or cameras as broadcasting devices, I think that for our museum, we're looking at the opportunity for cameras to be noticing devices. Mm. Um, and, and, and when you think about how you use your camera... Um, there, you know, to create an app that uh, there's a specific reason why you would go to the app to take a picture instead of just use the the camera, um, and 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 using that one little that 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 one little extra piece of effort to really signify a totally different intention for what you're doing. So getting people to slow down and notice the world, they're doing that some with their cameras, even if they're not totally aware of it. And so can we use cameras to make them intend to actually do that? Well, I think that's quite interesting. I mean, Matt, you were just talking about walking around Montreal and taking mm-hmm. photographs of the public art. Mm-hmm. Do you think you actually notice things differently because you have a camera so close at hand? Like, do you think it changes the way you actually look at the world? I think that, um, you know, I, I think I use a camera a lot more than I used to just as a research tool. I think mm-hmm. just as, you know, whether I'm doing work for art, artsy or just operating kind of generally as an art historian, I think that the camera is a, an amazing device just to record your, uh, you know, like going into an art fair or going into a museum where you're just not sure that you're going to catch something. And and I think that a lot of the times what, what I say to people is that, you know, you're not going to remember what you saw. You're going to remember a few things. And sometimes it's good just to take like a reference picture. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. I take like basic reference pictures of things so I can, you know, it can be a, a memory flag you know, to bring up something for myself. So I think for research, I think it's nice, you know, often I'll go through, uh, you know, pictures that I've taken from travel um, and, and kind of then sit and meditate on things a lot longer. Obviously, it's not a first-person experience with an artwork, but it's just, it brings up the ideas that you had at the time. So I'm not, you don't ask a photograph to be this all-encompassing experience, but you ask it to be a, a kind of trigger for something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I like the idea of you're talking about the noticing mm-hmm. uh, um, so here's here's the question I have to use, um, especially for research, but also for memory. What's your practice for referencing that uh, that photo? Like, when do you, at what interval do you go back and look at it and reflect? And or do you have any practice? Because pretty soon after I yeah. take the pictures, because often you know you, you, your pictures. I'm sure we've all had this experience where your pictures get lost in the ether. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. that like I, you know I have. I have two kids, and we're taking pictures of them all the time, and so you very quickly can lose track of, uh, you know, all the pictures you take, and, you know, you want to have them all, but it's, I feel like, you know, we try to just at least, or I try to at least edit as, as much as I can so that y- you can go back quickly and see it, because before you know it, you're, it's, there's a whole other stream of things that are yes. taking those pictures' yeah. place. But, you know, I would say that even if you don't go back mm-hmm. and look at the photos, there's a value to having taken them, mm. um, and 
I have some kind of related data. It's very old, but probably nonetheless pertinent. From 2005, and Silvio Filippini Fantoni, who's now at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, um, did a study for us um, of Tate's bookmarking system in their new multimedia guide. Now, this was on iPacks. This was not the kind of seamless experience that you can have on an iPhone or a new Android smartphone um, in museums. But we were trying to offer an ability for people to take notes to essentially collect things that they had enjoyed during their visit so that they could send themselves, it was very simple, an email with links to the artworks that they'd found interesting and they could go back and look at them on Tate's website later. And um, so she did a study of how many people used the system and it was pretty high, it was close to half, it was somewhere over 40% of people um, were actually using the bookmarking system. Only about half of those actually went and clicked the links to go Mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. But when she did the phone interviews, people said, you know, yeah, I still have the email. It's in this, you know, my rainy day folder, and I intend to go back. And I would argue that even if they'd never clicked the links, the fact that they had that souvenir, it was kind of a promise to themselves that someday they would, you know, (laughs) reconnect with the museum. There's a value there. But I do look forward to the tools being even better, you know, like the way that when you connect your phone to your laptop, the images are automatically downloaded and categorized by date. It's already such a help. And I'd love to see even more tools for automating the organization of my photos so I can more easily reuse them. Because sometimes it's just kind of laziness that it's still a little bit clunky to what tag. What would be on your wish, wish list for tagging? Like a, like like image recognition? or OCR would be great. I use oh, yeah. a camera a lot to take pictures of labels and text. Oh, interesting. Um, and it'd be lovely if that could be automatically searchable. Right. Um, and, yeah, maybe... Um, easier voice annotation of the images too hmm. so that when I take them I can make some voice comments hmm. and then maybe that would save my thumbs and the repetitive strain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's sort of funny because then well, Matt was saying before that he sort of finds it a pain to have to take his phone out of his pocket to do this because I'm really thinking a lot about Google Glass mm-hmm. and the implications of having those sorts of wearable technologies yeah, right. and how that might then change the way people again capture things but also that has voice associations with it as well. So actually the capacity maybe to sort of be self-dictating notes along with Mm -hmm. taking photographs I think becomes really interesting Mm -hmm. as a a recording Mm -hmm. device sort of in a multiple sense. I I just wonder like with Google Glass, like when, so so hypothetically you could just record all the time. Mm. So will people just do that? Right, like Not where will be? For a long time, the battery life is nowhere near good enough. For that. Yeah. <laughs> but let's I mean, say, but let's say, let's say five, you know, maybe five years, ten years from now, you have that ability to say, like. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna take a picture. I'm not gonna take a video. But okay, your whole day will be on video, and you don't have to worry about it. It's like the whole idea of, you know, Dropbox or something, where you don't have to worry about storage space anymore. So people just have intense amounts of duplicate. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm probably, I I do this, but you have lots of duplicates because you just you're not worried about your hard drive, you know, getting filled up. So I think like, I wonder if that's gonna happen, and we'll lose this sort of division between like a, a demarcated video or a demarcated picture and it will just be kind of day and then you have to go back and sift through. And whether yeah. you would go back and sift right. through. Right. That's a real question. Depends on the data retrieval, right? If it's easier. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So, so the, uh, what's jumping out to me now is a, is a quote 
from back in an interview that I read with you where you said, my brain is not in my skull anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was from uh, Karasakis.com. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And so, so this, this kind of dwindling or um, evaporating of the interfaces that we're dealing with, as, as, the, as we don't have to type, but we can talk, and as it becomes wearable and, and monitor, I mean, is that is that a problem or is that like what do you think? <laughs> I th- I think it offers a real opportunity for um, for the pendulum to swing back. Quite honestly, I think that it's it's really interesting to look at these technologies and how they are becoming more and more um, seamless with our experience. Mm. There's still there's still the like you know if let's let's say for the phone right now there's still the taking out of your pocket and the sliding or the fingerprint but we're getting to the point where there may be some sort of blinking i'm not sure right, right? there's something going on um, and, and, and at the same time, we have these, these tools like a pen and paper that have served like Einstein and Picasso. They're completely unencumbered and capable of like, you know, conveying our ideas in a way that Google Glass and battery life and all of these things has interface and, 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 and static to that too. So, so I think that we're, we're at a point where as, 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 as institutions that have a lot of old history based on analog tools, um, there's an opportunity to kind of reincorporate them in a sense mm-hmm. as well um, and not just you know, lean towards these tools to get slicker and slicker until we have the same sort of thing. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah, but I'm interested as to, I mean, this idea of you know, brain not being in the skull anymore, of how much we are sort of relying on these technologies as almost substitutes for things, like whether it is rather than actually remembering something in an organic way, whether we're sort of putting their memory into sure. the art of capture. How many things. phone numbers can you remember these exactly. days? Yeah, yeah. That's right. the, the only ones so. you can are the ones from when you were a kid. Right. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. absolutely. Yeah. And I, I guess that's what I was trying to get at was that Maybe one of my one of the reasons why I'm, I'm drawn to these analog things is to keep those muscles strong. Mm-hmm. I, I think that they really matter. There's some studies around um, GPS and um, you know a memory maps in the mm-hmm. brain and how you just lose the ability to make a memory map whenever you use mm-hmm. GPS, oh, um, but you can rebuild mm-hmm. it. Uh, which is also good. Yeah. We're highly adaptive. Obviously, if we're losing the stuff, we're adapting in that way. We can sure. gain it back. Sure. But I think we're learning new skills, too. You know, I don't think it's all about atrophying because of technology, but the technology is pushing us to develop skills in new ways. You know, Certain kinds of hand-eye coordination came from having to learn how to use my, mouses, mice. And uh, you know, that's something, tapping on a touch screen. Um, I remember the... Uh, Park Xerox Park ages ago, and again they were first working on iPads, teaching people how to touch with a stylus, a touch screen. Mm. It was not a skill that came naturally. They were actual huh. tutorials until now. We don't, you know, hesitate. And not to mention the kind of multitasking or switching among screens and and platforms, which, you know, frankly, um, I think my dad finds overwhelming but um, my daughter just does naturally but not because she was born with it but because she's been surrounded by those multimedia right. devices yeah. all her life I, mean, I just to add one more point I think that like uh, you know I think for for research I think having uh, a device on for me personally I think is amazing because I think just uh, one basic thing that I do is you know I think about when you when the, when you quoted this comment about you know not having your brain in your skull like I say that to people where I don't I don't try to remember things anymore I just write them down mm-hmm. and so I have like a 
you know, I love kind of organizational apps. I have this app called Workflowy, which I love, which is just literally like this an excessive list making app. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very <laughs> fair. It's, it's, it's awesome. And it's, you can basically, it's a bulleted list where you can expand or contract your entire life, you know, literally wow. in like all these different lists. And so instead of having those things that bounce around my brain where I did, you know, growing up where you have this idea and it's like, you, you know, rather than just like having it kind of take up your time all day you can just write it down whereas you know if I didn't have a notebook on me because it was too bulky like a phone is just there so right. I really appreciate that and you have to be able to trust that right I mean because if you you can't trust it then it's then you're again thinking about those things on a device so there's this element of trust in the in the in the technology Backup yeah is huge. well because yeah. it's like because it's not just you know locked into a phone like if, if it was like uh you know 10 years previous and you had a palm pilot and then you had to sync it with your computer then you'd be like right. oh is it really going to sync but like this is web-based so literally it syncs automatically yeah. so it could be on your computer so then it's like kind of following you around yeah which is nice but i'm interested in how the temporality of the trust if that's the right term mm-hmm. is different mm-hmm. so I actually trust my phone more than a notebook within a certain window because I know it's being backed up to the cloud and if I lose my phone, I can get the data back, which is what I really care about. But then outside of a certain window of time, which might be five years max, I trust paper a lot more. You know, paper's actually a better storage medium for, if you need to just get something to last for a few hundred years, Mm. paper's probably going to be a lot easier to maintain than digital. Right. Because of the changing devices, you know, I, I, I don't think I can read my doctoral dissertation anymore. It's on a disc that I don't I wonder like also I think that brings up the question of just you know I, I think the New York Public Library just bought Tom Wolfe's uh, um, uh, papers for you know millions of dollars and yeah. I was thinking about it like what is our generation's mm-hmm. uh, purchase going to be like are people going to pay for it because it's going to be like on a hard drive or like right. will it just be really hard to gather together um, I think I think there's all these interesting questions around kind of the nature of like what scholarship will be, what research will be, what papers will be. And this be. has already come to, to the fore with born digital art. Yeah. Right, right, how do we, right. How do we acquire exactly. something that was born digital and maintain it? And How do we value yeah. it? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's infinite copies. And right. also the sense of who is worth collecting, because before it was sort of easy to tell when someone was a public figure or not, but actually now we're all kinds of public figures. Mm-hmm. So actually who and what is worth collecting in that sense as well? I think becomes really interesting. I mean, when everyone has a Twitter account or everyone has blogging and those sorts of things, everyone's sort of semi-public or public in a way that just wasn't the case before. So then who is who is worth keeping That's and collecting? That's a really important question for museums. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about what are museums, what are museums for, you know, what are they good for, what are they bad for, and my latest theory on this, <laughs> and it's something that involves constantly, is that museums are for collecting, mm-hmm. so it's not about the collection mm-hmm. in the static kind of object sense as much as it is about the act of sele- selection. And it, obviously, you know, very important to t- think about who gets the right to make those choices but I'm fascinated by how just to go back to how you open this that act of taking a photo is also an act of collecting Mm -hmm. and the way that we're all kind of a lot more conscious I think now perhaps because with the technology it's so easy to collect certain kinds of things of those choices that we're making through our life yeah 
I think that's a really great point. I think something I've been thinking a lot since I've started working at Artsy, just going from uh, academia where you're working on a very like a specific project where you have a you know generally you're you're working with a, a finite set of you know objects. Uh, and then, you know, to work on a project where basically we're trying to have all the world's art in one location. Mm. So you become really conscious of the expanse of everything. And I think then also very conscious of how all of the way in which we create history is very subjective and very much based on people's choices. And it's, um, I think it can be, uh, can be one hand, you know, you're witnessing kind of how power works in some ways, but also you're, it can be very liberating because you, we realize that you know, these are just choices. It's not like that people are only, you know, they're only privy to certain objects, but they're privy to everything, and then they're deciding, you know, what narrative to, to, to propose. Mm-hmm. Well, something else that, um, that we have now that we didn't have then is this sort of, like, stats about, like, mm-hmm. who's watching. Right, yeah, and, exactly. And, and even on Twitter, just the interactions that happen, you know, it's like reputation is, is quantifiable in a sense, and... And it's also democratic because mm-hmm. you don't need, you don't really need anyone to have a voice anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So I wonder how that will change things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's kind of riff on the stats and the and the idea of, of collecting because as our devices are, are becoming more advanced and the interface is becoming smaller, we have this idea of passive data collection, right? Mm-hmm. That you can track uh, with pedometers. We can track. Um, our, our weight and our eating, we can track uh, people's movement through the galleries and of museums. Uh, I'm curious, I think, let's start off, do any of you, Beck, first, do you, do you use any of these things to monitor your own personal behavior, or, or and, and what do you do with that data? So this is sort of what I've been working on for the last uh, three or four years now, um, which is, it's part quantified self in, in you know, Kind of passive data collection of things mm-hmm. that are um, that there are devices to passively collect, but it's also inspired by quantified self, but different. And it is collecting data that isn't exactly, um, you know, you don't exactly know what you're going to use it for. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that for science, um, there's a real opportunity to generate new knowledge if you collect that kind of data. Um, scientists, uh, as I understand their world, um, have to <clears throat> prove that they have to the, prove the value of a question before they get funding for it. Mm, um, right. The the question that they're asking has to have a lot of rigor applied to it to be publishable at all. And and a lot of this sort of like you know um, data. I was I was just thinking about the Tatley um, mm-hmm. thing that we saw with Swiss Miss. You know, I would like to collect data of, of having people sign up to receive a tattoo. They don't know what the tattoo is, and they don't know where they're going to have to put it on their body. But they'll do that, and then I'll, I'll ask them a survey about what it was like to wear that for a day. Like, what would that data mean to a social psychologist? Mm-hmm. It probably would be interesting and help them ask a greater, more rigorous question about the world. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite interesting you say that, and this is so... In my thesis, there's actually I'm writing a little section on that, and there's some argument that that is sort of changing um, the nature of the scientific method because usually it's been it about is. defining a hypothesis in yes. advance, then collecting the data. Whereas now we're getting to a point where it's possible to collect the data and then seek um, a way of analysing it through pattern recognition and things. Um, that's actually sort of it, it's a post hoc sort of yeah. hypothesizing right. and I think that then becomes really interesting again for us as institutions in terms of how we deal with um, 
well, with this collecting question, these, these sorts of ideas about sort of post hoc analysis of what we're collecting and those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think it's a I think it's a really interesting topic. I think the way just to share kind of our own experience, my own experience with uh, you know for Artsy we. For the genome project, the initial idea was, you know, before I started, was to kind of go out and scrape the internet and find this kind of corpus of information where we could basically send bots out, find this amazing systematized vocabulary for art, and then just move out from there. And, you know, that's the kind of, like, post hoc system where you're just, Mm -hmm. like, relying on the data, scraping it, and just, like, you know, creating this, uh, your end product, whereas in actuality you know, we realized that we needed specialists and we needed to base it on, you know, somebody that's had experience in the field. So I've seen kind of both things happen where I feel a little bit, you know, I definitely, there's, you know, we talk about like two different ways of using data. You can be like data-driven, data-informed. We try to be on the side of data-informed where like you can you can look at the data, but, you know, you have to be very wary of how it's actually going to function. And sometimes it, it will take you so much more time to go out and, and create a technical solution rather than just doing it, you know, the old-fashioned way in something or, or basing it on a kind of specialist, um, uh, um, you know, skills. But but I'm really excited to see how, you know, the, those kind of, um, you know, data-driven ex- or data-based um, uh, experiments can actually progress forward because there's so much, you know, possibility. Mm-hmm. Nancy, I'm wondering um, if, if you're seeing that in, in, in your museum experience with uh, this passive data and, and if it's if it's being utilized at this time or there's an eye toward... There's definitely an eye towards it. We had a really interesting symposium at the Smithsonian um, just a couple of weeks ago, and it's actually recorded on Ustream um, from the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center, and it was about surveillance. And um, one of the speakers was Sam Quigley from the Art Institute of Chicago, who's here now, so people can go talk to him after this. Um, but they have one of, they're one of the few museums that actually has a location-aware system in the museum. So they're, they're using Wi-Fi and, and software to know where people are. Um, and it's really for the purposes of making location-based content delivery possible on mm-hmm. mobile devices. But he talked about the potential to data mine that mm-hmm. um, to improve the quality of the visitor experience. Right. Now, that's not new. Um, you know, some of the more sophisticated audio tour systems long before the smartphone or Wi-Fi-based triangulation would um, record every audio stop you listen right. to. And that would tell you, you know, if, if one stop was heard a lot, okay, that's an indication of popularity. But equally, if one stop wasn't ever listened to, it might be a sign that there's a problem with the hang, you know, that that object is not visible or it's easily easy to pass by. So it could actually inform the curation of the gallery. So those are some really, you know, kind of obvious and interesting applications. But there, you know, it's, it's also a question of how far do you go? And at what point does it become creepy um, or intrusive, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. to feel followed in a museum? <laughs> yeah. And, and everywhere else. I mean, these questions of privacy, but also the capacity to do things unmonitored is then sort of becomes an interesting question. And whether the benefits of that monitoring are greater mm-hmm. than, than the costs of them. And I think that's a bigger question, but it's still an interesting one to consider. And hard because we, as you say, we don't know how the data could be used in future. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to judge whether it's a risk or a threat or not. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we're really just winging it. <laughs> right. Which again is not something that museums tend to be very comfortable with. <laughs> 
Well, if we grew up with the expectation that none of this stuff was trackable, I wonder what it will be like whenever... Like, we have two worlds right now. Um, one of my favorite quotes is, the, um, the thing our grandchildren will find quaintest about us is that we distinguish the real from the virtual. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, we just, we can, because we totally lived in both worlds. Yeah. Um, or, and as I say that, both worlds, I'm distinguished. <laughs> but, but, but I just, I wonder from the standpoint of expectations of privacy, what ne- the next generations will even expect. Right. You know, because right. it, it could, it, that in the, in the same kind of Marshall McLuhan, it, it could change mm. um, quite, quite quite differently and it's just not this this big thing to them and i recently read um the circle by david eggers um which is you know kind of approximate future sci-fi has anybody else so um you know it basically takes these ideas to their kind of logical conclusion so what if you can record every minute of your day Mm -hmm. um they call it going transparent Mm -hmm. and you know start by really kind of um forcing politicians into going transparent and gets to the point where you can't be elected if you're not a transparent politician, which means that every minute of every day and every meeting is recorded and publicly available and live streamed. Um, You know, what if... Uh, high-res cameras could run off of solar power indefinitely and be almost invisible so you could put them anywhere so every place is monitored and kind of Mm. what are the logical conclusions of that in terms of the impact of culture and it's pretty creepy as you can imagine (laughs) Um, but very provocative yeah Yeah. i mean it's i I definitely was reading about that book and and um i think there's some interesting lessons from the past i mean one basic thing was that like uh, i was reading about the history of television the other day and talking about how there was this pushback people wanted to put televisions on ovens and or like or like or like on your refrigerator or something but like in your kitchen you know obviously people now have televisions in their kitchens but for a while there was like a real sanctity around um you know putting like keeping the television in the living room Mm -hmm. and not putting it anywhere else in the house and there was you know maybe we'll get to that point where there's going to be some kind of like push back around uh, divisions. Yeah. But I still have that prejudice. Yeah. I, I remember meeting somebody just talking to a stranger about having children, you know, a re- new mother, and he said, oh, I, I'll, bet, I'll bet your daughter already has a TV in her bedroom. And I'm like, no, no. certainly not. <laughs> so I'm an, I'm, I'm, yeah, I've yeah. inherited that prejudice that technology has to be in a certain place until it comes to my screen-based mobile phone. <laughs> yeah. like, and that's got to be always with me. Right, right, <laughs> yeah, right. absolutely. I mean, Nancy, I'm really interested in terms of because you do have like a young child and Matt you have yeah. kids as well like how do you think about your children's interactions with those uh, kinds of technologies? I think about it a lot and partly because there's again a sort of a moralism around children and the use of technology huh. yeah. and you know constant art you know the, when you become a parent you, you're suddenly aware of just how much you get preached at and mm-hmm. how how many guilt trips you're sent on a daily business basis because you haven't done this and you should be doing that um and so I think about, you know, should I limit screen time? Um, and, and I think that's a good question to think about, but I'll have to tell you my experience has been, um, and it's perhaps particular to my daughter's situation, she's adopted and um, she had a lot of catching up on things to mm-hmm. do, like speaking and <laughs> um, kind of some basic skills that wouldn't have been an issue had she been born to us. Um, and screen-based devices have been critical to her development. Huh. Um, and the thing that I've been most amazed by, you know, beyond the usual, of course, she figured out the interface in two seconds, and she was two years old. I mean, it, 
not a problem. She showed me things I could do with the interface on my phone that I didn't know I could do. Um, but she really loves learning, yeah. as I think we all do until school kills that in some way. Um, and she chooses to use her, her her phone. She does have an old iPhone without a SIM card, but I mean, without the the, the cellular connection. Um, and she chooses to use it to learn certain things. And there were two things in particular um, that I was really struck by. Because she had to learn to speak late, we used ASL with her, and so she has an ASL app. And she loves watching the videos and learning signs, and she now knows more than I do, and so I'm kind of struggling to catch up with her. And then she's adopted from China, so we've also tried to maintain her Chinese, and so she has little videos for children to learn Chinese, and she loves watching them and watches them over and over and over and has taught herself Chinese through her phone. And it just blows my mind um, because I can't learn that fast anymore. Yeah. So so far, the screen-based devices have been fantastic for my daughter. And I just wonder, you know, is there going to reach a point where I'm going to have to say, no, put down the video games and do your homework? I guess it's coming, but for now, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I mean, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I... uh, you know, we have we have an iPad, and basically uh, that's used for you know we're we're in, in New York, so um, you know on a car trip. So that's kind of like you know it's a it's a real like exciting thing to have on a car trip. I think in the house we, you know, limit. Uh, we don't have a TV, so that's like become the default TV. I think that's where a lot of people are going. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been actually a really interesting thing to see. Just I feel like in the last like couple of years, people I know people that were real TV people that have given up their TVs and mm-hmm. relied on you know things like Netflix or had like a you know um, pay for Xfinity, Comcast kind of thing, and just just about how you know. I think I think the one thing that I feel nervous about in the future is just about how like the phone will be a part of their lives and I feel really freaked out about like social networks and mm. stuff like that mm-hmm. and, and about the the sort of sanctity of um you know uh middle school is rough high school is rough anyways or you know and I think that having something where people can lash out you know, against each other and I think that's that's just I you know, that's that's what I think about more. It's more in the future. I'm not as concerned about kind of the current state. I'm really interested. So a few weeks ago, I was at a VAT camp in Sydney, so uh, the Humanities and Technology camp. And there were some academics there, and they were talking about um, their students and how their students process work. And they were talking about doing um, readings and things, and they, one of the comments is they didn't enjoy them because they found them lonely. And so they actually, all of the students use like Facebook as a place to work together, even when it's not specifically assigned group work, oh, but they wow. actually have this sense of doing things by themselves as feeling lonely mm. and they're not being able to sort of tra- translate that, which I think is interesting for museums mm. as educational spaces as well, yeah. the sense of, well, how do you create something so that people... like. Is learning becoming a communal thing in a different right. way? This is it's one mm. of the things I learned from your fantastic session yesterday was the, the, the power of the group and the, its role in the learning experience. I, you know, maybe again, going back to my thesis that kids love to learn and they know how they need to learn, they are naturally seeking out that group experience because actually it does help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting too to think about 
you know, the, the biggest problems that our world faces today are, are, are social problems. Mm. And um, even, even the ones that feel very sciencey are because of human behavior. And so it's, it's just really interesting to think about this new generation is feeling lonely as a singular because the solution to a lot of this stuff is grouping up. Um, so that's promising, actually. I, did, I had never heard about this. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting, because she was just sort of reflecting. We were just yeah. sitting around. Actually, I'll be honest, I proposed a session which was a fairly similar topic to this, and this was her response was her speaking as an academic and as a teacher mm-hmm. and the way she was seeing her students adapt. And it was really interesting just to get that perspective and then to hear people in the room start to actually talk about their own experiences. I mean, I know myself from blogging, I get so much from the community that happens around blogging and the discussions that I get that way, and it helps shape my thoughts Mm -hmm. in a really different way from um, the sort of writing I do for my PhD, which is very sort of by myself. And I I actually think I much prefer the social, interactive and responsive approach. But going back to what you brought up initially, Jeff, about the skills we have to learn to Mm -hmm. use these new technologies, I mean, clearly there's some really important social skills that need to come along with it. I mean, Hmm. frankly, I'm so glad social media didn't exist when I was a teenager. I I would not have wanted the kind of stuff that I was up to back then to be recorded in perpetuity. Um, And so... You know, it's it's astonishing and it's very intimidating to me at what a young age children have to start to develop a sense of a person, public persona and protect right. themselves mm-hmm. from doing themselves, you know, some pretty serious professional and career and exactly. reputational harm. I I feel lucky. I I was born uh, actually. Normally, I wish I you know feel lucky for having been born so late in human history. But in this case, <laughs> so can I can yeah, I just ahead. bring we we touched on this idea of uh, you were talking about kind of mapping galleries and engagement. I think that's something that's really interesting to me, just about how we're kind of using um, data in museums. I, I I guess I'd be interested in both of your perspectives on how like how you think about engagement with whether or not it's art or, or an, uh, an exhibition, um, because I think that there's, there's different ideas about it um, that are going around, and I think at, at a basic way, like how long you spend in front of right. a painting right. is right. like a, a measure of engagement, right. and I think that, mm. you know, I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm like uh, very much on, you know, the sort of expert area of, of my field, and, um, and you know, I if someone looked at how I walk through a museum, they'd be like, you'd probably get a zero on engagement because <laughs> I fly through certain parts of museums and don't look at anything because I know like what I'm going to look for, or I or I see something and I might come back to it. But I think that there's just uh, you know, I, I I think there's a lot more we could do a lot more in that area, yeah. just sort of thinking about it. So yeah, I, well, so I think one of the things that we're doing because we're living these lives online is, um, and this is related to that session yesterday, is we're writing more than ever before. Mm-hmm. And right. that, that record of what we think about um, an experience, there's evidence of engagement in that um, and evidence of learning in that, potentially. Mm-hmm. And um, so one of the projects that I'm working on, we're using rhetorical analysis and actually just carving up everything that people say about an experience that we have mm-hmm. and um, and using a framework, seeing if you can find using that as data and seeing if you can find evidence of learning um, in in mm-hmm. those writings and and specifically evidence of learning as a as a as an indicator that someone has changed their habit of mind. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not you know I, I I know now that 
you know, this happens when X thing happens, but rather I was changed by this experience um, and, and words that articulate that. Oh, interesting. Beck, do you treat that data differently from the sort of data that you're collecting, um, you know, asking people to text in their mood and things like that, which is somehow it's less intellectual, right? It's more biological data, if you will. Um, I'm just curious how you think about those two different data sets, because I find myself quite happy to share my writings and my conversations online. Um, I, I periodically think about, you know, getting these bracelets and things that track your heart rate and your pulse and everything else. But I'll have to say, deep down, I'm afraid of collecting that data because I don't know what might happen to it long term. Mm. And I mm. feel less in control of it because it's not a product of my intellect. Mm. And I, I wonder if, if others kind of share my paranoia, and it's not rational, <laughs> but of, of there's somehow the biological data being... More, more susceptible to abuse. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I do think that people have that fear. I think that I do treat it differently. I think a great example of one project that collected both kinds uh, was the game Frenemy. So we, we did a, a, a game which was uh, Prisoner's Dilemma based, and you were paired up with someone, and you had to decide to be their friend or their enemy. And we were working with a neuroscientist who was studying the decisions that we make and whether if, we are, if we're like someone, um, are we more cooperative. And, um, and also if we, if we engage in pro-social behaviors like riding a bus to work, are we more cooperative. Mm-hmm. So, so we had this sort of like biological data. I mean, it's the the decisions that we're making in our brain about, you know, reactive. Mm-hmm. And then we also had this confessional that was basically a place where you could completely anonymously write about your experience. And and we were using that data in a very similar way to how we were using the facilitation data. Uh, it wasn't the same project, but it, it was similar. So in one sense, I feel like, and I'm speaking purely as a museum here, but one sense we were... We were collecting data, the decisions that people made, as a new role for museums, that people trust us and we're able to you know, anonymize the data and treat it you know, the way that an IRB would require and give that to a scientist to advance knowledge. And then we have this other body of words that people are using to describe their experience, which is showing that they're totally um, having metacognition about the experience that we're delivering. It's just more like evaluation data. Mm. Um, mm. It's just, I think it's, a, it's just a, such a great world to be in right now. But I do agree that, you know, there's a responsibility to protect a lot of this stuff that we need to be having these conversations mm-hmm. so that we're not, we're not being um, naive. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about, you know, data and uh, self-measurement um, and all of that stuff. Let's, let's talk about how all of this is affecting our perception of the world. I would think of like like Google Art Project or high resolution images of artwork that allow us to get so yeah. close to things yeah. that that um, may differ from the in- original intention of the yeah. thing. Yeah. How uh, as, with your work with Artsy, I mean, yeah. and working almost completely in the in the digital world, yeah. how how is that affecting things for you? Um, so I, I I don't know. I think I talk a lot about. You know, I think why art history exists is that people need context around art. Like, I, I don't really believe in a naive observer. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that the way that actually relates to Zoom is that, you know, and we have Zoom, right, on the site. It's like a big feature that we uh, talk about. Um, 
but I don't feel like seeing something really close actually enables you to learn about it. And I think that a very basic way to demonstrate this is to, to talk somebody through a painting and that the way that you actually need to teach seeing, you know, that, that seeing is not something where you, you register something or because you can see it very close, because you can see a Van Gogh very close, then you get it better. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that. Um, but I think that, you know, it's a great tool, but I think you need to be given the sort of context uh, before you can actually really use it to its, you know, advantage. Mm-hmm. This is a really interesting point because I don't know if I'm taught how to see art or images that exist digitally. Like, you know, I've, I've been through art school, so I have... Right learned how to see paintings through particular methodologies and things like that. But I don't know that anyone's ever taught me or that, in fact, we have this capacity for teaching people how to see and read images digitally in the same way. Like, there maybe isn't the same sort of framework, and I wonder whether Mm. there needs to be then. I I don't think it's that different. I think that we, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about how crazy it is that we have, like, Digital and, and the things are so fast, but like I think it's the same thing as having a reproduction that that's been around since the lithograph, you know, or, mm. or you know even earlier than that. And I think it's just about um, it's about spending time and thinking about how like what goes into an image, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be a work with lots of you know I'm just talking about artwork, but it can apply to lots of different things. But um, it doesn't have to be uh, an image with lots of iconography. It can also be an abstract work, but that that you have to sort of talk about. You have to have somebody, you know, you said it well, which is like how to read an image. Mm. Sorry. Something that I think is so fascinating about um, about where we are with technology right now is that we'll, we'll have... It, just, it reminds me of, I know that this didn't really happen, but the, the train that people ran out of the movie theater when they saw the train on the... Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I'm always amazed when Apple comes up with a new display... And I have been looking at my monitor, and I don't see pixels. And then I see the new display, and now I can see the pixels. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, it's like it's like it's like I have it, I have instantly evolved in a new way of, of noticing mm-hmm. this like <laughs> this this degrading you know resolution. Mm-hmm. And um, and and I just I think that's really interesting for something like you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're, I think your question is really important. I think we need more research on that because mm. I, I suspect that looking at digital images is different from looking at analog things. And I just have a, a, a very simple analog e- example. You know, I went through art school looking mainly at paintings or slides and reproductions of paintings. Mm-hmm and then got into my doctoral research and was focusing on sculpture. And after a number of years of spending a lot of time looking at sculpture, I noticed that when I would go to new galleries, um, the first thing I would notice in the room was the sculpture, no longer the painting, that I had shifted some way in what I was noticing. And I commented on this to, to Ben Reed, who's one of our sculpture professors, and he said, yeah, he thinks, you know, it's, it's an animal thing that mm. you go into a space with something that's three-dimensional and unlike a two-dimensional image, you have to decide instantly in your kind of lizard brain, friend or foe, fight or flight. And I suspect that there's similar things in mm. other media as well. And I certainly have noticed in myself that, uh, for example, when YouTube came out and people started posting videos like how-to training videos, I was like, God, why would I want to take the time to watch a video when I can read the text instructions so much faster? I'm now flipped, and I'm sure it it was not conscious. I didn't try. It's just because I've watched so daggone many videos now. (laughs) I've gotten better at it naturally. Yeah. 
So there's got to, there, I'm sure there are things that are changing about how we see because of the different media that are being pre- presented to us. Yeah, I think, so I met an artist about a year ago, and this is a slight segue, but one of the things she does, she's a painter and she works primarily with oils and things, and she was saying how at the end of every time she has a painting session, she documents her work. But it's not to document her process and how the work's evolving. It's actually because she knows that her work is most likely to be encountered online and she wants to make sure that it, that actually the camera reads the work well and that it can be read well digitally. Mm-hmm. And therefore she's adapting her work and what she's actually creating mm-hmm. in response to the fact that people will be reading it primarily online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this idea that, I mean, if people are even sort of adapting their art into the interface through which it will primarily be interacted with, then I think that idea of how we respond to these Mm -hmm. things becomes really interesting. And how we zoom and how close we can look and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. And I'm sure you know from working with Artsy that there's some works that reproduce really well online Mm -hmm. and, and, and in fact, probably look better online than Mm -hmm. they do in person. Uh And then there there are others that are the opposite. And I mean, I always found when I was working with the Gallery Channel, that was one of the biggest challenges, was how could you be faithful to the original. Now, you, there's, that's a very problematic desire. It's <laughs> another do- yeah. conversation, but still there is that impulse, and I think there's a very strong demand for authenticity in the digital world, in the online realm, mm-hmm. and how can you guarantee it when the medium is inherently doing some translating that can often be a pretty strong misrepresentation mm-hmm. of the yeah. original? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I definitely think, you know, the points about, you know, there, there being something different about the digital. I just I keep coming back to this, like, you know, I, I don't, looking back, it's like people, you know, raise their hands about, like, photography and about, like, you know, re- reproductions in magazines. You know, so much of how, like, you know, cubism was disseminated was through periodicals and things like that. And, um, you know, on one hand, I feel like, oh, it's just the same old thing, right, but right. but there are differences. I mean, there, you know, and 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 you you know, you can't represent like a happening or a performance or like you know, uh, uh, you know, how does a video? I mean, one thing we've thought a lot about is how does a video sit next to a painting online? You know, it's it's the same issue that you have in a museum where you know you put a painting in the same exhibition space as a video, and it's a, it's this crazy experience because the video is just overpowering and so much noise and images all coming at you, and there's a painting that's just there. Mm. So um, I think there's there's a lot of different ways in which like you know that 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 I think the same issues keep coming up. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, there's some basic things that I think are interesting just about like being backlit. I think that's like something that's really powerful. I think like. You know, people always talked about TV just being really pleasing for people because they like the light on their face, and and I think that oh, wow. you know people like you know Jeff Wall, for example, put his photographs in a light box, and that's actually mm-hmm. like a that became a thing, you know, mm-hmm. for people, and it was very helpful for advertising, and so I wonder if that's actually helped people, you know, with images rather than mm-hmm. having it on like a you know a page mm-hmm. where it's not backlit, mm-hmm. you know. I'm wondering about your experience uh, publishing the book too, because you you, you published hard copy and digital mm-hmm. formats. Yeah. And I wonder if there were decisions uh, made in the production of both of those that were based on the on the medium, or if you're receiving any feedback about any kind of usage of those things. Um, well, I mean, I I really pushed to have a, an ebook version of mm-hmm. my book, like have it on Kindle pretty quickly, mm-hmm. and because I I feel like that's how I read a lot of books. Um, I don't think that's particularly. Um, normal for art history right now. I right. hope that it actually changes. Um, 
but I mean, you know, I'm also I, I'm I'm working for a startup, and I think that like I'm not sure. Like, I want to write more books, but I'm not sure they're actually going to take the form of a book. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's lots of different ways in which we can experiment with the delivery of of information. You know, I was talking last night about uh, with my friend who's here about. You know how maybe you could write a book through some kind of organizational technology. You know, like I, we, my team at Artsy uses this thing called Trello, which I love, and mm-hmm. people get really annoyed because I talk about it all the time. But, <laughs> but it's like a, you know, it's like a a, a, pre, a prettified version of Pivotal Tracker. You know, um, where you can actually track projects with cards. You know, it's like hypertext novels. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, when we had that technology about like having something be modular. I think that's a really interesting thing to explore about the modularity of, of knowledge and having mm-hmm. things that, you know, and also something that's instantly shareable and where you can see the kind of, you know, mm-hmm. you can iterate. Like, I love the idea of an iterating book, not to be irresponsible yeah. about scholarship, but actually, you know, like the, 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 the crazy difference between just like an, an academic PhD and then also doing a startup is that, you know, you, you work so much on a PhD and then it's like it's finally done and it's done. It's like mm-hmm. it's finished. I mean, some people mm-hmm. go back and revise, but that's 0.001%. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then with a website, it's totally different that you right. iterate. And I think that's even one basic thing that was hard to translate to people that, you know, my colleagues and, you know, former professors just about like, well, you know, here's this website and they're looking mm-hmm. at it and they're like, well, what is this? Mm-hmm. You, you, know, you don't have this, you don't have this, what about this? And you're like, well, no, it's, it's iterates. I mean, it's... I thought it was interesting that you said that, or you sort of, your comment about responsible um, scholarship. Yeah. In some ways, I actually wonder whether our idea of what responsible scholarship is or will be um, or can be might change to the fact that actually you can update things and that actually mm. responsible scholarship it's not to say yeah. you don't do the initial work, but actually that it becomes the fact that you can make sure things are updated mm-hmm. mm. and more responsive and that you can include new content and new kinds of understanding. Right. I think technology can really help with that. You know, um, it's hard to keep track of, um, of sources for your citations and scholarship. Right. Um, but, you know, we've, we've seen, we're seeing, you know, ability to meta tag um, assets, improving that to some extent. I think we've got a long ways to go. Certainly, rev- you know, rev- um, versioning mm-hmm. in certain platforms is helpful um, because most kind of plagiarism is too strong a word, but that's the charge that's thrown at it. You know, when when people use someone else's work or cite it without you know actually crediting the source, you know, that's most of it is not done maliciously. It's just because mm. it's hard to keep track <laughs> right. of all that stuff. And right. so I see that as a place for technology to help. And actually where the sort of research you're doing on rhetoric is really important too, because the more modularizable our knowledge can become the easier it is for other people to take those units and reconfigure them to tell their own stories and make their own meaning, but also the more critical it is that those the source be inseparable from the asset. Mm-hmm. And it's not just important for you know reasons of good academic rigor, but there are real political issues at stake here. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, hi- historically, um, it will always be the disempowered and the emarginated whose work gets stripped of its credit, of its reference back to them. And in some ways, that's easier in the digital world. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something actually Paul Marty and I were talking about last night that I've been in this community long enough that I'm starting to see ideas circulate that I remember when they were first proposed 
and by whom, but those people aren't getting cited. And it's not that big a deal in this community, which is you know fairly egalitarian, but when you start to talk about other discourses where you know gender makes a big difference or race or economic status or whatever, we need to really tighten up our rigor on mm. making sure that credit goes where credit is due. Well, right. Nancy, though, think about, uh, just to push back a little bit on that, because I totally, I, I get where you're coming from, but if we think about this this loneliness that we were talking about before and how, you know, the, the, the newer generations are just co-creating, you know, mm. I, I think that it's going to present some interesting um, sourcing. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and on top of that, um, when you have editing um, as part mm-hmm. of the creation creative process, yeah, then you really can't tell who said what. And, you right, know? right. So I think we're kind of going towards, uh, you know, applications that allow us to write. I mean, you know, I don't write anything anymore without having someone else, even if we're just sitting across from the table co-writing it right. yeah, in yeah. a Google Doc. Right. You know, so it's just sure. really interesting. Now, I totally agree with you, and I guess what I'm trying to signal is. Um, perhaps an easy answer to this challenge would be to say, okay, let's just abolish the idea of intellectual property. Yeah, like right. nothing is copyrighted. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what I guess I'm trying to signal is I, I want to think that through mm-hmm. and think about where the power starts to circulate That's and lie. Yes. You know, one of the big problems that Wikipedia has is that less than 15% of its authors are women. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when your KPI, when your mission, your key performance indicator is, how are we doing on this, you know, collecting in our encyclopedia all of human knowledge? And, you know, it's so, the, the half of the planet is so underrepresented. Mm. You've got a big problem. Yeah. And that's the kind of effect, unintended consequence right. yeah, of a sort of a liberalization of copyright that I'm worried about. And obviously, you know, absolutely don't want to stop people co-creating or sharing or reusing content, but just thinking about the other dimensions. It's a great that. point. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're getting kind of uh, toward the end of this, but I want to touch on some some mindfulness issues. Um, what is so, Beck? What does all of this kind of say about the larger uh, the larger aspect of permanence? Like, is anything permanent anymore? Um, I think actually, uh, it's possible that that more than ever, if we can sort of rely on devices to be um, taking care of a lot of the details, we may be able to be more present in the moment mm-hmm. than 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 um, having to kind of have a lot of affordances for all the other things we were having to keep track of before. I'm not exactly sure, <laughs> and I also spend a lot of time resisting the technology because I think I think we are born with this burden of knowing, and 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 we're in a world right now that is just so absolutely overflowing with information that we could kind of entertain ourselves the whole time right. and never really reflect or stop to, to, to notice. So um, so it could go either way. I think it just depends on what your intention is. I think we are at the sort of wrapping up time in terms of this now. This, this is 
blow me away, actually. Really yeah, I'm, I've got so many avenues that I'm going to want to explore, but I'm sure that some of our audience and some of our listeners will want to explore things as well. If people want to get in contact with you or want to follow you on Twitter or any of those sorts of things, where on the internet, since we are talking about that space, can people find you? Matt, where can people find you online? On Twitter. Uh, I'm on, I have, a, you know, you can send me an email. Um, I have a website. It's just Matthew Israel Projects. Uh, on Twitter, I'm cross temporal, which was a, started as a, a joke of a, you know, I, I started artsy and I didn't have a, um, a handle. I wasn't on Twitter and um, I kept using the term cross-temporal to talk about the way that we wanted to relate artworks. That every, and everyone's like, oh, you should have a Twitter handle. I was like, oh, it'll be cross-temporal. And we laughed, and now it's three years later. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but that's why I have that handle. So that's probably the best place to reach me. Yeah, cool. fantastic. Beck? Um, I'm lucky enough to be born with an alphanumeric last name. <laughs> my last name is Tench, which is the number 10 and then a CH. So my Twitter yeah. handle is 10CH. Um, nice. And I'm also very Googleable, Becktench.com. Brilliant. Cool. Yeah, and probably the best way to reach me is through Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not very creative, so it's just at Nancy Proctor. <laughs> and that's, I'd argue that you're not, your creativity is not <laughs> yeah. measured by the fact that you use your name for Twitter. <laughs> well, I will point Our names out were probably taken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I will point out it's OR on the end, not ER. So um, that's a great way to reach me. Um, you can also find email address and, and other contact details through um, my personal website, which is museummobile.info. Yep. And, um, yeah, I look forward to hearing from people. Yeah, cool. We'll, we'll put links to all this stuff and some of the more pertinent things that we discussed in the show notes of this episode. Uh, and those are at museopunks.org slash 11. I know. It's 11th episode. Up to 11th. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is the last day of this of the conference, uh, and there's still uh, uh, some really great sessions. Um, uh, Matt, you're presenting right after this, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, can you give um, us a little spiel on that? Uh, we're talking about art search, the challenges of art search. So we have someone from the Getty, someone from Art Store, someone from Keep Thinking. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, sort of, you know, various different case studies and talk about kind of um, all the different uh, ways in which we've tried to deal with making art more accessible. Cool. How about, are you guys done presenting? Or? Yeah. All done. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to... Um, do a little interview with Jane Alexander uh, next. So cool, great. Switch great. chairs here and, and, nice. and dive into the uh, Gallery One and Art Lens projects at the Cleveland Museum of Art. So cool. Very cool. To that. Brilliant. Very cool. Jeff, um, yeah, um, plug yourself. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing a session on open authority in museums. Uh, it's myself, Ed Rodley, um, Lori Bird, um, Portia Moore, and Elizabeth Bulwark right after this, kind of looking at the idea of, of um, you know, what is museum authority? Can we can we can we open it up to be uh, a more of an omnidirectional kind of experience? So um, should be pretty interesting. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think again, it's a really important time for us now to say thanks to um, MCN to the Museum Computer Network for having us and for bringing us here. Uh, this has been such a rewarding thing to actually be able to have these conversations and to have the yeah. person. I mean, we we love doing the podcast, but there is definitely a different experience to having a conversation like this via networks that are sort of there's jolts and you know blips along the way versus having something like this so i wanted to say thanks to mcn thank you so much for having us uh parska films as well yeah um that's it you want to button it up yeah i think we are done people find us on the internet at museopunks.org we're going to keep our conversations happening we do this podcast comes out monthly and 
Hopefully we will find some more interesting topics and guests like these guys have been. So thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye, thank you. <laughs> cool. Got <laughs> <laughs>